Crimson Tower Studios. Welcome to the Old World Podcast, the unofficial podcast for Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay and the original podcast to bring you both discussion and actual play in 4th edition. I'm one of your hosts, Lance, and tonight I'm not only joined by my co-host, Matt, we're also joined by one of the main artists involved with Woofrup, Sam Manley. Welcome, Sam, and thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you for having me on the cast. I really appreciate it. I'm looking forward to it. All right, Sam, why don't you take a second and tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, who you are, and what you do in the gaming community. Okay, um, hello everybody. My name is Sam Manley. I am an illustrator with the company Cubicle 7. Um, I have been in the role-playing industry for pretty much my entire career. Um, But outside that, I have been heavily involved with art as well. I was uh, chairman of my local art society. I was involved in the art wing of my local fringe festival where I actually put together some small graffiti events. Um, oh. But yeah, that's that's pretty much what I do. Um, sun up to sundown, I like to be working on Woofrup. Very nice. There's actually here in my hometown, there is a now annual festival that is all about uh, graffiti and painting. It's called oh. Bright Walls. And they go in our downtown area and, and do just massive pieces all over on uh, buildings that otherwise look pretty drab. I love that that's something that is, I think a lot of people are changing their perspective on that graffiti is not necessarily a bad thing. It can be beautiful and, and really brighten up a whole, a whole city. I think so. I mean, over here we've got Upfest, uh, which is in Bristol, which I think is one of Europe's uh, largest festivals. And they really do look after the artwork there. It's covered across the town. Um, I think they have, something like one year off out of every five. Um, but it is, it's a, a, a huge festival that, you know, it's an international thing. People fly in and there are people doing you know, like small pieces. And then there are people on cherry pickers covering entire buildings. And for the, for the few days every year that it runs, it's, it's beautiful. It really is. Now we just need to get some Warhammer art up on a, yeah, on a right. building here in Jackson. That'd be sweet. <laughs> Excellent. That would be legit. All right, so before we get too far, let's take a second and thank our amazing, outstanding Patreon backers. Their generous donations help make this show possible. So this week... Yeah, this week we got Chris Williams. Uh, Chris, thank you so much for supporting the show. We really appreciate it. Yes, Chris, we do appreciate it. Your support and many others. If you'd like to join Chris and buy us a beer or a tea, be sure to hop on over to our Patreon page and support us. For only a couple dollars a month, you can help us continue to bring you discussion and actual play in the grim and gritty world of Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay. Check us out at patreon.com slash oldworldpodcast. Awesome. All right, guys. So uh, what kind of gaming has everyone been up to? That's one of the things we like to ask. So, um, Matt, what have you been up to this? Well, um, so I did get back from Origins recently. We're going to touch base on that a little bit later. Did get a chance to play some games there, which was super fun, of course. But right now I want to talk about a brand new game actually that just came out. It is available in the U.S. It's a Target exclusive game. It is Jaws, based on the the classic shark movie. It is a hidden movement game where one player plays the shark and the rest of the players at the play at the table play as the various crew from the movie. And it is absolutely superb. One of the funnest games I've played in a long time. Nice. The game is split into two very distinct halves. The first half, the shark is moving around hidden, trying to eat as many swimmers as possible, where the crew is trying to 
predict where the shark's going to show up and then take actions to try to prevent it. Is it a co-op game? So it's 1v all. One player plays as the shark. The rest are working together as the crew. And the shark player has a little pad of paper where they're keeping track of their movements on. Once the first half of the game is done, you then flip the board to the other side, and it is a battle between the shark and the crew. So you've got the boat that's there that's split up into eight sections. The crew is moving around. There's uh, each round in the second half. The shark has three different spots where he could pop up and either attack the crew or attack the ship. And you have this to try to predict. Awesome. Oh man, it was it was absolutely spectacular. I like hidden movement games. One of my favorites prior to playing this was Spectre Ops, which was essentially like Metal Gear Solid if it were a board game, where one player right. is trying to like infiltrate this big facility, complete objectives, and then get out alive. The other players are trying to hunt him down and kill him. I don't know if I would ever play Spectre Ops again after playing Jaws. It was that good. Wow. And it's only... I want to play this game. Oh, it is fantastic. It's, like I said, in the US, it's a Target exclusive. It's from Ravensburger. Components are excellent. Rulebook is bulletproof. And it's only $30 in the US, which for a game of this quality, I'm telling you, that is a steal. Just called Jaws? Just Jaws. Wow. That just got on my buy list. Yep. Definitely worth checking out. I'll also mention really quickly, I just got in the new Star Wars game today, Outer Rim. Mm. So be ready probably next episode to hear my thoughts on on how excellent it is. Excellent. Well, I haven't been doing a ton. I've been uh, I've been prepping for um, some Star Trek adventure stuff, and uh, I I have some uh, some things that I'm working on with uh, a potential project on that. So um, for me, sometimes I don't get to play actually play games as much as I'd like, but I get to do like session prep, which for me is kind of like a game. Yeah. I enjoy it so much. Still still within the hobby. Right, right. So so no, I, I always have my fourth edition. I'm always working on my fourth edition stuff. But I uh, Star Trek Adventures is something that I've taken a little detour, taken a little break, and, and uh, did some session prep, which you and I got to talk about that later. <laughs> awesome. But yeah, that's honestly, I, I besides that, um, life has been a little crazy, so I haven't got much more on, on the table. What about you, Sam? I've been working on Woofer. What more do you guys want? No, seriously. I have, um, I'm going to go uh, for some much older stuff. I have been playing a little bit of this, uh, this great old skirmish game uh, called HeroScape. Um, oh, which you're been- kidding. <laughs> you're kidding. You, you know it. Sam, Heros- oh, let me tell you about HeroScape. I, I have uh, several things to say right now. But Matt, okay. HeroScape is probably my... Minute, you had a 20-minute, like, uh, dissertation on HeroScape, I think, in our episode zero. Or uh, yeah, I may have. <laughs> So Heroescape's one of my. Fa- I'm so sorry to interrupt you, Sam. Heroescape's one of my favorite games of all time. Yep. I have a a complete collection of everything that was ever made, and sold in stores. I literally only am missing like two con exclusive uh, figures for that. And I'm not kidding. Two days ago, we got a brand new game table that is enormous, and all I can think oh. about is building a Heroescape map on this table. But it's good fun, though. It's good fun because I feel like. Um... You know, the, the modular terrain is fun. And I feel like it, because it's relatively simple, um, I, I really like that. I really like that you can set up and, and you can, once your map is built, you can play it really quickly. Absolutely. I love the fact that it's a pretty good, I think it would be a good introduction to um, all kinds of war games for, for kids. And, you know, it, there's so much creativity has gone into that game. I'm curious which ones you which ones you don't have. So I don't have two of the Gen Con exclusive figures. I don't have... Uh, Agent Shaken, which is one of the Nikita agents, and I don't yep. have uh, Master Winchu, who's one of the the monks. 
Those are literally yeah, the only two things I've tracked down everything else. And I totally agree. I think that's one of the greatest examples of maybe the best product line I've ever seen because it was super affordable. That terrain is a thing of absolute genius, how it all fits together, how you can make, make a map exactly how you want. And the figures were they did some good terrain packs as well though oh yeah i know i i yeah it broke my heart when that line they they did um, they did a um they did a magic version as well didn't they yes yeah i I own that i I didn't get into that as much (laughs) (laughs) yeah listeners i'm so sorry we're gonna rename this episode matt and sam talk about HeroScape for the rest of the night. No, that's it's just a new, because, because it's, it's, you know, it's discontinued. It's, it's yeah. not that uh, common to run into somebody who's going, Oh no, actually I, I know that. Yeah. I, I tell and the you fan what, community for it is pretty good still. It as is. Well. Yeah, it is. I actually at Gen Con last year, there was a huge setup for HeroScape. There was probably oh, yeah. 40 wow. tables. Yeah. It was over in the Lucas wow. oil area that uh, people were playing it, but it's one of those things where anytime I meet somebody who knows HeroScape and plays HeroScape, I feel like I just made a new best friend. Yeah, I know <laughs> the know? feeling. I know because the feeling. It's, it's good. It's good. It's a really good game. Wonderful system. I tell everybody that if you ever find literally any product for it, if it's a – Lance can attest to this. Like a few months ago when we bought that first edition core book, I yeah. also bought from the same person a little like Ziploc baggie with some terrain in it. Right. Just because I, I, if I ever see any of that stuff, I will buy it up. No, yeah, no, it's, 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 it's a really, um, it was a really fun idea. It was a really, really fun idea. And I think that you can be super creative with it. Yep. Yeah. It's a system, right? So you can, you could create goals, right? It doesn't just have to be a death match or, you know, a certain number of rounds. You could make a capture the flag scenario or a King of the Hill scenario or specific objectives. Yeah. 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 Oh. <laughs> so good <laughs> see so you guys are talking like like how i would talk about like warhammer fantasy battles yeah that's except it's way less well way i remember the first time you and i played HeroScape together yeah because you weren't sold on it i that's I because you're coming i'm sure you know part of the reason i want to speak for you but right. i think it's because you're coming from playing war games where the rule system were was much more complex I, I it was all right, but my biggest thing is I beat you in that game, and then I decided, <laughs> nope, I'm putting my hat up. Gonna I'm just going to retire with that one win. <laughs> well, if you if you ever feel like you want to give it another go, I assure you, I'm I will gladly. get those lava tiles out. We'll talk. I know, yeah, yeah, I got some, I got them. You know, I do. Good stuff. <laughs> anyway. Let's move on. So uh, let's move on to the announcement and news section. Uh, this is a part of the show where we keep you up to date on Woofrup and related news. We, I got really got to change this because we scour the web for juicy leaks. Most of those juicy leaks come straight from Hubble 7 now. So we were talking about this before the show, and I think we talked about it last episode too. Cubicle 7 is like on top of their media yeah. now. So. Um, we don't really have to scour so much anymore. Now it, I'm almost reminded of that scene from I love Lucy where she's on like the chocolate assembly line or like the, and like she's trying to box all these chocolates and they keep coming and coming and coming. I feel like that's how we are with news about right. Warhammer that it's coming so fast. Our and there's so much is, of it now. Yeah. It's so huge. Yeah. So you want to start us off? I sure do. So in cubicle seven related news, there was another team Tuesday article that came out this time talking about Elaine Lithgow who is a freelance writer working on Age of Sigmar Soulbound and Warhammer 40K Wrath and Glory. Yeah, actually, there are more writers involved with Cubicle 7 must be growing. They they picked up Wrath and Glory, and 
I got to imagine. I, um, are you, Sam, I don't know if you're, maybe you're not at liberty to say this or whatever, but are you doing any artwork for Wrath and Glory? I honestly, um, I don't know what I can say. That I, mo- I have worked on different product lines uh, in, in the past, and I will uh, work on different product lines uh, in the future. Fair enough. Man, he, he's so good. He's so good. I feel like we're going to try all night to get... No, I'm just <laughs> So, well, that's awesome. Yeah, so that was a good article. Um, I like seeing the writers and stuff. It's a good way to get to know them. Yeah, yeah so. like we've said before, it's a great way to kind of put a face to a name and... Right. Yeah. So, uh, and we had more blog posts by our good buddy, Ben. And Ben, I want to say scary. I think it's scary. But um, anyway, he did a couple. There's a part one and part two. Um, I was I was corrected on that uh, when I said it. I, I believe it's Sherry. Sherry. Wow. Ben, Here buddy, we we're Months sorry. We've been going to be awful name. if I'm wrong, though, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, man. I can't wait. One I feel of like we've said that name like maybe a hundred times. A hundred times. Well, it's because he keeps writing articles and he keeps doing. He's involved so much. So. Um, we got your name right, Sam, right? Sam Manley? You did. You okay. did. All good. Right. Good. All right. So, um, all right. So, Ben wrote uh, another uh, blog post here um, by Hook or by Crook. And this is about taking the plot hooks, and there's tons of them, right? And making them into full fledged adventure- adventures. So, um, this is really cool because in this two part article, he actually takes one of the plot hooks out of, I think it was the uh, Adventures of the Reichland, like plot hook mini, I think it's that free download. And he actually takes it from, it's a plot hook all the way to like a full adventure. He talks about a process where he talks about the starting situation um, and then defining your cast of characters. Uh, and I really like this because these are things like as a GM, as I'm prepping stuff, like I do this stuff, but I didn't ever think about it in an ordered way. And actually I've feel like it's going to help me and then he he in the next part of the uh, the blog post the part two he talks about setting the scene um which is actually pretty cool about the he gets into the story plot elements too about like reinforcing conflict and and making sure you dole out bits of truth every now and then very cool and then of course plan for the unexpected which you, you can only do so much there there are books and books written on that and i still feel like i'll never i'll never truly be ready but it was a, that's a very very interesting blog post and it's it's a two part uh, blog, and like you said, Lance, it really it helps you take these little hooks, which by now we have hundreds and hundreds of these things, right? And finding ways to to pick out the ones you like and how to fit them together. It was a very good article. So in addition to that, he also gave us a two part FAQ, which is in addition to the FAQ that we already have, and I'm sure that as as we continue to play this awesome game, more and more little edge scenarios are going to come up that we're going to need clarification on. So he did give us some answers to some frequently asked questions. We'll go through a few of them here. The first one, do species skills count as career skills for advancement? The answer to that is no, they do not. Can I use cavalry weapons when unmounted? Yes, but it is often not a good idea as he goes to and that he expands on. Do magic missiles suffer from range combat difficulties? No, they do not. Right. Yeah, and so a lot of these, obviously, we're just giving a couple of, like, highlights of things that we thought were interesting, but, um, or, you know, we get a lot of questions about. Um, he actually goes more in-depth than simply yes or no. In the right. Effect. So, yeah, be sure to check it out. Yeah. And again, that's a two-part. We just went through a couple of them, obviously, yeah. but definitely, 
definitely good to have that printed out. I've got my, so I, I haven't taken the dive and actually written uh, and changed things in my actual core book. So I've got the errata and FAQ just printed and sitting in the front under the front cover. Maybe someday I'll actually bust out a Sharpie and right. start writing in. But for now, it's good to, good idea to have those printed in nearby. Yeah, for sure. And the one on the part two that I really was interested in is can you wear layered quick armor? And that is a yes. That is one of those where I got into it, I think, with one of my cousins or whatever. Like It's not specific, but it's implied. So it's like, yeah. So anyway, we also had recently the UKGE, moving on here, UKGE, there was a live stream uh, where uh, Dom and Zach uh, did an interview with Beast of War, and uh, there's quite a few things that go in there. There's a, the core rule book, the starter set, um, you know, the enemy within collector's edition. So they touch on a lot of the things we've already touched on here, but you can hear uh, they kind of... Dominic is down there given a lot of, you can tell, man, it's the passion. Like, if you've seen seen it, there's so much passion. But anyway, uh, the, the video I actually found can be difficult to find on Beasts of War's website because they got so much going on. So um, we did make a quicker link for you. You can go to oldworldpodcast.com forward slash UKGE 2019. And uh, that'll take you right to the, uh, the post with the information there. Sam, were you at UKGE this year? I was there. Um, I was there just on the Saturday. Yes. So it was uh, really cool to see just how fast um, all the Woofrup stuff was just flying off the table. We had <laughs> to get we had to restock that so many times. Awesome. I believe it. Yeah. Yeah. There's so much good stuff. Yeah. All and right. It was also it was the first time I've been to um, it's the first time I've been to the UKGE since um, I think I might have gone in 2012. It's just got massive since then. It's such a fantastic show. It's like your version of Gen Con, right? Is my understanding. It's getting that way. It's getting that way. It's it's really continuing to grow, I think, year on year. It's, nice. It's definitely on our list to attend someday. One day, man. Someday. One day. <laughs> I looked at tickets the other day, actually. I like bet. Plane sure tickets. I'm like, oh, man, I still can't afford it. Yeah. Well, we had another article that came out by ICV2. This is Travel Down River in Death on the Reich. So Death on the Reich, of course, is the second part of the Enemy Within campaign. The article includes artwork for Death on the Reich and the companion book as well. Uh, the book is going to be hardcover, which, of course, uh, we kind of came to expect that. It's also going to include rules for river life on the Empire. Some of this is what Graham told us yeah. last episode. but Yep, and that in the rules on river life was something that was in the original The yeah. Enemy Within uh uh, death on the Reich. Um, obviously, I expect it'll be updated for fourth edition. Yep. So mark your calendars, listeners, because that book is scheduled to release in October. It is going to be forty US dollars for the adventure book, which is one hundred and sixty pages, and then another thirty-five dollars for the companion book, which is ninety-six pages. Or, of course, you could go with a special edition, which is both books for one hundred and fifty US dollars. Right. And to be clear, this article has yet to be like restated or how what's the word i'm looking for maybe like um cubicle seven hasn't come out with an announcement on their own page about this mm. but the pictures and everything look legit and i think it was an interview with graham that they the original now uh, don't quote me on that i'll have to go back and look because i don't have that written down here but um, yeah maybe it's because we were just talking to graham it was in my yeah in my head be. but um yeah anyway so that is definitely i mean it, it looks beautiful i expect um hopefully we'll see something from cubicle seven soon maybe with some more details um but 
the artwork, man. It's, it's interesting. We're going to be talking about artwork, right? Yeah. So, and Sam probably can't even, I, I bet you probably can't talk much about this until we have more official announcements. But no, I don't think so. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> anything, anything that Cubicle Seven has officially announced, I'm very happy to talk about. <laughs> Excellent. Sounds good, man. You're, man, he's he's got that NDA down. Yeah. So, <laughs> all right. So, um, Game Master Screen and Game Master's Guide. So this yay. is something out. Yay! I know we're so excited. So this is one of the things where I've one of my biggest like I don't have a whole lot of complaints about fourth edition like very very few but one of them the one is like I needed a GM screen like a full GM screen like a year ago like ship, shipped with the core book, yes I really did so um, I'm super excited to see this announcement not surprised at all um, according to the details on the article four panels with artwork on one side quick rules and reference on the other side um, and plus it comes with a guide which includes articles to help player build their worlds and run the best possible adventures for their table I am so interested yeah that could mean a lot of different things. It could be just like a simple GM guide, but is it talking about build your worlds like from a Warhammer point of view? Like, man, there's so much coolness that could be there. And the reason I say this, and I'm getting I'm getting a little off track here, but on second edition, they have, uh, what's it called? Renegade Crowns, which is the expansion for the Borderlands. And it had entire rules with tables, tables, random mm-hmm. tables for you to generate like your own Borderland kingdom and adventure out of it and stuff. And it was great. So I'm hoping, I mean, it might be a little much to expect something yeah, we'll like see. that there, but I'm, I'm hoping for something. Yeah, it'll have a September release, and I'm sure we'll, we'll see more about that in the coming weeks. Right. So, and you can find this article too. We pre- created a direct link for this. Um, just go to oldworldpodcast.com forward slash ICV2, and uh, it'll take you right to it. So there's also been, uh, we got so much news here. There's been a ton of Soulbound and a ton of Wrath and Glory updates that have hit too. So um, if that's your jam, uh, definitely go out to Cubicle uh, 7's website at cubicle7games.com and check it out. All right. In other news, we are still talking about conventions as we are in the middle of convention season. And I was at Origins all uh, four days this year, and it was a lot of fun. Now, we were at Gen Con for four days last year. And boy, it is, uh, it can get exhausting by yeah. that final day. Yeah. But this was a lot of fun. I got to meet a ton of industry people, which is really cool. I did run into a couple of our fans. It was great to meet you out there. And of course, I talked to TS for a little bit at the Cubicle 7 booth. And I got to play in a game that was ran by a GM who did a great job. His name's Joe Orlowski. He ran a game for us, had a huge setup with modular terrain and miniatures yeah you sent me a picture man it looked pretty cool i wish i could have been there yeah he did a great job he definitely knew knew the lore of warhammer down and one thing i really liked about the way he taught the game when we sat down i was the only player who had ever played warhammer before and instead of spending all sorts of time on the specifics of how to play the game and the rules he spent a good like probably 15, 20 minutes or maybe even more just talking about Warhammer as a world and the lore so that more so than learning the rules and the nitty gritty on how to play, everybody there had a good feeling of what they were getting into as far as how it was going to feel. So I played as a halfling thief and I may or may not have been chucked over a, a, a gate that we <laughs> thought was closed until I got over the wall and saw that there was another gate that was wide open about 10 feet away. <laughs> so that was fun. That's awesome. So yeah, Origins was great. Shout out to Joe. We are also going to be attending Gen Con, which at this point is just over a month away. 
Oh, man, is it that quick? It's getting here quick, man. man. Are you going to be at Gen Con, Sam? I'm not, no. Oh, dang. Are you going to, um, you'll, you'll have to, you need to call up Andy and be like, hey, man, I need to be at Gen Con. I do. I need, I need to get over to the, uh, I need to get over to the States, maybe next year. All right. Well, by then we'll have a sea of products for right. fourth edition that we will uh, <laughs> be swimming in. <clears throat> but yeah, so Lance, uh, you and Steve and I are going to be at Gen Con this year, uh, just on Saturday. Yeah, just on Saturday. I wish we could do more, but that's all for this year. Yep. We have, uh, we're going to be doing uh, Warhammer Seminar. We're going to be sitting in a Warhammer Seminar and then also doing a, there's a, a game as well. Yeah, a game. Yep, we got the game. And then there's a Cubicle 7 has a news press conference thing that you can sign up for on Saturday as well, which we'll be at. Yeah. So, um, yeah, if you guys are going to be at Gen Con, definitely come find us. We'll have, our, uh, we'll have some black Old World podcast shirts with the logo on it so you yeah. should be able to find us. Yeah, we'd love to. Anybody, any of our listeners who are going to be at Gen Con, let us know. Uh, again, we're only going to be there Saturday, but if you are in the area, we would love to get together and have a quick little meetup. And then there's the, the convention that you're basically running. Well, I, yeah, helping helping run, <laughs> uh, and that's Grand Con. Talked about this a lot. If you are in the Midwest, if you live in the Michigan area, Grand Con is a lot of fun. That's August 30th to September 1st. Check it out. All right, and I think that concludes our news basically so let's get to our main topic the meat of our show if you will so tonight's show should be a fun one as we are finally going to give the artwork of fourth edition the attention that it deserves obviously sam is a perfect person to have join us for the show since he has contributed artwork to almost every released fourth edition product so far actually is that can you can you say so far that you've have you contributed to every piece I uh, think there have been a couple of um, a couple of uh, free PDFs that have been put out that m- where that might not have been the case. Okay, but all the major- uh, there, might, there might be a spot or two in there, but uh, all the all the major releases, yes. Awesome. So, old worlders, beware of the glowing paint and the sculptor's knife as we dive deeper into the dangers that your game master can concoct by looking into the artwork of Fourth Edition on tonight's show of the Old World Podcast. All right. So, Sam, we already had you introduce yourself a little bit, but let's let's dig a little bit deeper and learn okay. a little bit more Sounds about Sounds painful. You. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, this is Warhammer, so that's got to be I mean, if you were going to get out of this without spilling a little blood, I'd be disappointed. So, okay. Can you tell us both what is your history with Warhammer and WFRP and what is uh your history with art within Warhammer? Okay, so um I'll start with Warhammer because that is pretty much where it began for me. Um, when I was about eight, I think I walked past a games workshop store and I was just hooked by the models that I saw. I want to say this was in the, um, the Merry Hill shopping center in Dudley. That's not relevant, but that's where it was. Um, I hadn't seen anything like that. And the visuals of the world just pulled me right in. And I think the first thing that I saw was, I think it was probably 40K. Um, it would have been about second edition then. And it was the Space Marines that I noticed. And uh, then, you know, I went into the store. I started talking to the people. And I picked up uh, White Dwarf. And it was the artwork again that really, really hooked me. Um, and that kind of opened me uh, up into getting into all of the various different games. Um, you know, I, I think Necromunda was going at the time. Obviously, oh. uh, Warhammer Fantasy. Um, and I became aware of the role-playing side uh, a little bit after that, I was one of the, the many people who started with the war game side and sort of, you know, I, I then became aware uh, of the role playing 
uh, and all of the art in that from there. Um, and with uh, Woofer Apart, Again, like I said, I was aware of um, things like the first and second edition artwork. Um, but then I I was kind of, I was off for a bit. I was studying, I was freelancing, and I was trying to get as many different influences as, as I could get. Um, but Warhammer was always one of the core influences. Um, and it's it's what was kind of cool to me is that, we, you know, there's there's some work that you've you've seen from some of the recent stuff that Mark Gibbons has done. Right, right. And he was one of the artists who really, really inspired me uh, when I was a kid. So to be working, uh, you know, to, to have uh, my artwork in the same book as his now, I was geeking out when I knew that was going to happen. I really was. Very cool. I love that story, too, how you, at such a young age, you just, the happenstance of walking by a shop window and seeing these models and this artwork that that pulled you in and what that what that meant, right? How, what? Yeah the effect that a, a happenstance, you know, a, a certain circumstance ended up uh, bringing you into not only to enjoy the world, but to be a part of it. It's very cool. So could you go a little bit into what your artistic process is like and uh, how does working on fourth edition for cubicle of seven, how has this affected that? Okay. So um, for specifics, it does depend on what I'm doing. But broadly, I'm always going to start with a little bit of sketching time to find some idea that I like, and then going to refine that into um, from a looser work into a tighter line sketch where I can get all the fabulous grim and warhammery details into it. And it's really so easy to just lose myself at that point. Um, then I'll throw some uh, light tone over it. That's to indicate texture material, which bits are going to look especially banged up where the light intensity and the direction is coming from. And that's actually the most important part of it, getting that bit right. Um, then I'll go in with some colors uh, because I've already, I've already figured out the tone. I've already figured out uh, the lines. And it's, you know, you can navigate just fine in a world with no color. Um, actually, you can have everything hold the shape that it's supposed to have. Right. But it's, you know, that that's why I say that the color is actually the least important of all of those things, even if something, you know, does have a very strong uh, color element to it. And then basically from there, once the colors are in and looking good, I'm, I'm working the whole thing uh, up to a finish. And the reason that it's done like that uh, it, in those stages is to try to tackle one problem at a time. If something goes wrong at any stage, then I can see easily where something stopped working uh, and I can fix it. Or if I'm submitting a sketch and my uh, my line manager, in, in the case of Warfrop, this is going to be Andy Law, um, if he spots something that needed to be in there or shouldn't be in there, it's easy enough to make a change on that. And I would say that working on Warfrop and, and uh, you know, with Cubicle 7, that's actually been critical in shaping my artistic process uh, into the way that it is now. Because I used to sketch in, I, I used to sketch with paint. I used to sketch in a much blockier sort of form where I would be looking to try to find a general sort of silhouette first and then refine that. Uh, but I ended up switching to line work because it is cleaner and it's easier to read. And that's very, very important for any, uh, any non-artist who might be seeing the sketches. And I think that's doubly so with... Uh, an aesthetic like, um, you know, like the old world where the details, all the, um, all the seals, all the symbols, all those little things with the, you know, the skulls and the twin tail uh, comets yeah. and the hammers and the 
grimacing moons and and suns and all the wonderful things that just give it so much character um it's really important to be able to see that and see where those are going to be uh and again it's just easier to to make changes um to line rather than tone so uh woofrup has um very directly changed uh how i create how i create my uh, my pieces my whole process has been kind of forged by it i guess it's the kind of thing of necessity is the mother of invention i needed it to be done in a certain way so i had to i had to find a process that that gave me the results i was looking for right so in on your twitter account we often you'll put out uh pieces of art where you have a uh, one that's a black and white line right yeah. and then the other will be the full color version which is yeah. which is really cool cuz you can see how you went from one right, to the, the other the evolution absolutely mm-hmm. So I was going to actually ask, um, so do you do all of this on paper or do you do it all on computer? Like, How do you do, what medium do you use? Um, I do it on, uh, I do it all digitally now. When I, when I started uh, this career, I was drawing things out on paper, but it just becomes so much easier because everything is being pinged around in different places. You know, I'm, I'm here just on the, uh, uh, just on the Welsh border. Uh, Andy's up in Scotland. The office is over in Ireland. Um, it's when things are getting pinged around rather than having to take a scan or a photo every time, it's just easier to be just working, take a screenshot, ping it over. Yeah. How's that looking? Right. Awesome. So what do you do like for direct, like inspiration? Like when, when they're asking for a piece, how much do they give you and how much of that is your coming from your mind as opposed to something they told you to do? I mean that very much depends. Um, that very much depends on the piece. There are all kinds of, of of different artworks, but I would say broadly, I I tend to categorize them into into uh, into two groups. And the first one is something that is um, uh, directly taking from the narrative. It is directly illustrating something that is part of a story. Now, in that case, I've got an awful lot of the details. Everything that's happening is pretty much fixed. Um, You'll see an awful lot of that in um, uh, in rough nights and hard days. Okay. Um, so as you as you go through uh, the the stories in there, you'll see a lot of the illustrations are there uh, as part of the story. But if you go to something like the core book, uh, you'll see that an awful lot of the illustrations are more sort of suggestive of things that might happen, um, and um, sort of more common situations that might be encountered. So in that case. I've usually got a, a little bit more, um, a little bit more freedom to play. I think in terms of how something is going to be composed. Again, it, it all comes down to what is the purpose of the illustration. Everything always comes down to sort of serving that goal. So, so I'm curious. So, you did the piece where uh, the halfling Molly is like uh, doing an extended test to unlock the chest. Right. Yes. That was yours. Yes. Um, so when a piece like that comes up, is it here's the story, the example we're going to use? Do do a piece to it, or do you do the piece and then they write the example? Uh, no. Um, most of the time, um, there is a need for something to be uh, to be to be in the text because the text is always going to come first. Okay. And then the art order is going to be. I mean, sometimes it's developed alongside the text, but there is always some text in place. Um, the, ex- uh, the exception for that would be like, um, recurring images, spot illustrations. Uh, but generally speaking, there is going to be an idea of a- at least what kind of text is going to be accompanying the illustration. So for that particular one, um, I did already know 
that we were going to be taking. Um, I don't think I knew the the uh, the halfling's name at that point because uh, that was quite an early one. Um, but I knew that we were going to be uh, illustrating her and she was going to be lock picking and there was going to be this relatively ornate lock. Uh, but then the rest of it was it's like, how do I want to set that up? What's going to be the best way to to show that? I got to say, so we put together a like a mini portfolio of all of the artwork that you've done so far that we could attribute to you. And how many pages okay. did you say that was, Matt? 98. 98 pages. We were putting multiple like pieces of art, just copying them, put them in a Word document so we could kind of look at it. So you have done a ton for Warhammer. There is, there is quite a lot of work there. There is quite a lot of work there. And, and there's, always, there's always pieces of work that uh, there'll be the odd piece of work that gets done and then um, uh, ends up not being used. Or there'll be spot pieces um, that uh, haven't made it in yet. Or there'll be, um, there's always a whole load of stuff that is for upcoming releases. Awesome. So. That's one thing that we have not been shy in talking about when we've reviewed all of the various products that they've put out so far for uh, Wolf Rip 4th Edition, and that is that there is an abundance of artwork in these books, and that is something that I, I absolutely love. I've said it a million times. You know, art can make you feel a certain way and can really, for, especially for people that aren't super familiar with Warhammer, being able to hold up your book and show them you know, an image of what their character might look like or what a specific yeah. Yeah. enemy might look like. So the fact that there is so much art in there is really, it, it, you know, really just pulls the whole thing together and, and puts it over the top. Right. Like your piece on the Minotaur, you had a couple Minotaur pieces that are just, man, it's a, you want to know the difference between a Minotaur, like when you say the average person in Minotaur and someone that doesn't know Warhammer Minotaur. Yeah. Here's a piece of artwork and you get it like immediately. Um, or the Vargolf. Right. Is, uh, oh, great. Yeah, at least at least a, a minotaur, you have some semblance of what that might be. But uh, if you're if you've never heard the word Vargolf before, which <laughs> most people outside of our hobby have not, that's going to be a little more tricky. It's a German beer, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. No, but I mean, I think that Cubicle Seven has always been pretty good. Um, I actually think they've always been very good with uh, the art in. Um, in their books, in their games. And Games Workshop has always had such a strong visual element to it. It's you know, right, right back from, from the very early days, um, you, can, you can see how they were working with... Um, you talked earlier about um, uh, Ben and his, uh, his uh, plot hooks. Well, um, I like to think in terms of visual hooks as well. The things that you will just notice, the, the, the element of a character or a world that really is something that sticks with you. It's usually fairly, um, it's usually fairly striking. Um, it's usually fairly obvious. And it is one of the things that you will immediately think of when you're thinking of a world. And I feel like um, Games Workshop across all of their lines, actually, has, has always done a, a very, very good job of conveying those things. So, you know, if, if I say to you, um, if I say to you Skaven, you immediately get some things in mind. It will be, it will be a look, it will be shapes. Um, it will be symbols. Um, if I, if I say to you, uh, you know, uh, vampires, you will get something else. Uh, if I, if I to hop across to another product line, there's probably nothing more iconic that games workshop has done than space Marines. Right. You sure. know what they look like. Yeah. Not, not very, not very strong. A, not just a guy in a, a power suit or full body armor. They are very specific. Right. And, and you yeah. know it from the silhouette. Yep. Absolutely. 
So that brings us to a good a good section here. What exactly makes art grim and perilous? Yes. Oh. So is it a color palette? Is it a specific setting? Characters? Why don't go ahead and tell us what what it is that makes art grim and perilous? I love this question. I really love this question because it kind of gets to the heart of what I think an awful lot of uh, tabletop uh, role playing illustration is aiming for, which is trying to evoke a feeling. And that's, that's always the challenge. It's trying to, um, you, even if you know what the feeling is, it's trying to translate that into, uh, and regularly translate that into your illustrations. Um, I think that when most people are talking about the artwork, they are talking in emotive terms. And, and this is it. It is, you know, it is grim and perilous. It looks a little bit um, it looks, um, you know, grimy. That's a feeling, right? It's a, it's a frightening world. These are, these are all feelings. And it's like when, you know, somebody, somebody's, um, you could, you could be looking at, at a wizard and saying, it's, it's got a very magical feeling to it. There's just something about this, this wood elf wizard. He feels magical. Right. Um, right. and it's, you know, trying to figure out what that actually means. Cause I think with Grim and Perilous, you have to approach it in a number of different ways. Uh, the color palette is a large part of that. It's generally kind of muted. It's generally kind yeah. of held down. So you're, you're working with what might be considered muddier colors, I think. But um, that means that when you do get shots of stronger color coming through, they, they really shine. But it Very, also helps yeah. to give it that kind of grimy right. feeling. Yeah, it seems um, like ev every piece of art or just about every piece of art is is in uh done on an overcast day or at some point where it just got done raining or yeah. you know there's a storm coming in and that definitely helps feed that mood as well but everybody's looking a little bit beaten up the world has really taken a cudgel to the knees of everybody here right yeah um one of the I pieces know, the, I'm actually I'm everything the, the clothing the, uh, the the buildings everything kind of feels a little bit cobbled together things that they're, they're restitched you're not looking at people who have got the finest clothing or at least if they did it certainly ain't that way anymore yeah right I I actually and I like how you said that contrast there too because I immediately thought of a piece of art where uh, the Sigmar stained glass window in the corner mm -hmm. rule book right. Mm -hmm. That doesn't have as grimy. It feels like more clean, like he's the savior of the world. Like, and I think that was the. Um, it doesn't feel as. It might maybe grim and perilous. It's still there, but it doesn't have that gritty feeling because it's more. I don't know. When I see it, I'm thinking, I don't know. He's the savior. So, which is something that hopefully comes across because that one is a little bit cleaner. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. And there's a there's a difference between most of the people. It's like mo most people have got chipped teeth. Some of them punched out. It's a nasty world. You know, yeah. it's it's a, it's a nasty world. There are skull motifs all over the place. This is not a friendly place to be. <laughs> the, the um, piece, I, the piece. I love that element of it. But it does mean that when you see something that is a that is a little bit different, um, when you see some of the uh, some of the illustrations in, in uh, Rough Nights and Hard Days, for example, where we go to areas that are a little bit um a little bit more upmarket. You can see the contrast. It should be immediately apparent from everything else that you've seen. Right. No, I agree. Um, it's uh, it's the difference when you're uh, the noble versus the mm. you know mm. the everyday person. 
There's actually the piece I'm looking at right now is of two men overlooking a like a gladiatorial combat. Yes. And it's muddy. The, t- the tin spur is that? Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yep. And the one of the guys has a big scar on his head and there's a skull on the shield. It literally encapsulate, encapsulates just about everything you just described. How there's a noble mm. here who's got nicer clothes, the other guys, you know, cut up and bleeding and it's dusty and it just it gives you such a feel. And I love the fact in this particular piece that the noble or the the gentleman on the left is blowing his nose. Mm. Right? It makes you feel that like it's just a snapshot of of life, right? That at this moment when this this piece of art happened, when this this moment happened, he had to blow his nose. And it's just it's really <laughs> makes the world the- that much more full and real when you see things like that. That's it. It's a it's a living world. Absolutely. You know, it's it's got a whole there's got a whole ecosystem that that's running that that's that's running through it it's got um i mean you just go through there's a huge amount of, of of material that's that's been written for it, and not just here but over goodness knows how many years you're right um and yeah there's there's an awful lot that's that's within it and that means that there's an awful lot of room to play but we still want to try to drag everything back to that feeling of of being grim and perilous a lot of times people look a little bit raggy. If you look at the silhouettes of characters, you can see that, um, you know, there's a, there's a little bit of tearing, um, in the cloaks. Uh, if you look at some of the, the chimney stacks that they're a little bit ramshackle, there's chains and things holding, holding them on. There's an awful lot of, I, I think there's more hope than judgment maybe has gone into creating, uh, into, um, the architecture. Um, whoever whoever built them was just kind of hoping that it would stay up. Right. I even even when you're looking at a piece like and and so we're just art geeking here at this point. But even when you look at a piece like uh, where the priestess of uh, Verena is, you know, mediating a dispute between two farmers or something. Right. Yeah. She's all clean for the most part. But when you really mm-hmm. look at her, I mean, the bottom of her clean white cloak is still you know, dirty. It's and, muddy. It's, yep, muddy. it's muddy. You know, she's supposed to be above all of that, but she's still in that world. So it's just, it's really cool. Actually, that was, that was a lot of fun. That was so much fun to do because that was a slightly different, um, that was a slightly different uh, palette and approach because most of the stuff that we're doing is, is set in cities. I really like cubicle sevens approach here to, to really dig deep into the, into the buildings, into the urban life. But this one, we go a little bit outside that. And so to still try to keep some of that feeling, but to try to hit maybe a little bit more of a classical feel to the painting. Um, that was, that was a fun challenge. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff you did. I, and I'm no art critic or art, you know, I'm not, good at that kind of stuff but i will say even the lighting you can tell like i don't want to say she has like a glow about her but like you look at her and you feel like yeah yeah. Yeah. so well done so uh one last question kind of when we're talking about art and you know grim and perilous uh consistency of artwork like i mean going from piece to piece uh you know and all you're doing a lot of art for what yeah uh is that something you ever think about like, you know, when you're doing it or does that something that just naturally comes? Because I've seen rule books, core rule books for different role playing games where art consistency doesn't exist and it's terrible. It's jarring. That's obviously not the case for any of the products I've seen so far for Woof Rip 4th Edition. So is it something you do on purpose? 
I think there are two ways of looking at this. Uh, I think that one is looking at the work that I do, and the other is looking at the work in a book as a whole. If you if you take each chapter or the entire book, almost as its own composition, um, I think that all of the artists are pretty consistent with what they do. Um, but I think that there's something to be said for not having too many artists, but having just enough to give you lots of different looks into the world. Because if you see the same style. Um, occurring over and over again, you do have that sense of, yes, this is consistent. But if you see a number of different artists as well, you also say, okay, so they see the world this way. Mm. It's fabulous in the, you know, you've got a world that doesn't exist except when people are thinking about it, drawing it, playing in it. And it's just how it might look. And if you get 15 different people all drawing the same iconic thing, they'll all do it in a different way. And so you can see how that just, I think that just gives you so many springboards for how you can play in that world. But for my own work, I'm fairly familiar with the world anyway. You know, I mean, I, from, from the age of about eight onwards, I grew up with this being somewhere in my head, foreground or background. It was there. Um, I don't find it that difficult. I find that I don't have to change uh, much of my style. It's, it's, a, it's a reasonably good fit for most of it anyway. Um, but then... Just hitting a relatively consistent color palette, obviously with uh, allowances for contrast to to highlight the fact that we're looking at something different. Right. Um, I find that that, and also the other thing that, that helps out, and this is going back to what I was talking about with the sketches earlier, is the constantly repeating motifs. Even if you're not necessarily aware that you're seeing them over and over again. I mean, with the skulls, obviously, they just... Right. They're very obvious. <laughs> you will. But... There are crescent moon shapes that occur enough times. There are, you know, there's the there's the sun shape. Um, I, have, I haven't even considered that. that. But they're the little things. They're the little things, and they're the little shapes. They're seeing the patches on somebody's clothing. There's the the fashion uh, in the empire of clothing being a little bit striped. There's the, there's the puff and slash clothing that's a little bit more obvious. But there's the striped clothing as well, and they're the little patterns and shapes that will occur over and over and over again and they never really take center stage but they're always there so even if you're not fully aware of it because it's not the focus of of any particular picture you'll still get the feeling that this is consistent that this is the same world that these are the same fashions over and over again yep the the feathered caps the the you know puffy shoulders all those things i'm just hammers Hammers everywhere Yeah. yeah purity seals all those things it's really uh it's very consistent throughout all of it. And that's that, that it, the consistency is there, right? We can see it and it, it helps keep you in, in the world. Lance mentioned that there, there are other books that we've read and other games that we played where art is not consistent and it, it can be tricky. It can pull you out if you're, you know, if it's, if it's too divergent from each other. Right. But, I think one of the strongest things to say here is that the, the, um, the art direction has been, uh, has been very good. Um, right the way through and that there's always been a, a guideline for what we should be sticking to. Um, so there's, there's never any, there's never any real doubt. There are always themes as like if you, you know, um, if you have, uh, if you have a shelf somewhere, you've, you've got some, some illustration, oh, I'm just going to pick something at random here, but you just got some illustration that is, that is inside. Maybe it's a tavern. You've got a shelf somewhere. Well, what you put on that shelf is important. So even if it's just a background detail, um, I, I just put a, I put a piece up on my uh, on my Instagram today that is a, a dwarf store. 
uh, supply store. And oh, what's yeah. on the background is important because it's reinforcing the shapes. It's reinforcing not just what this is, um, but the shapes and the motifs uh, of this of this culture of this place. So that that it's those background details I think that I, I'm I'm really big on what you can do with the background, the stories that you can tell with that, and how you can use that to enhance uh, a feeling of something being consistent. But that is something that has always come uh, from the top down and has, has always been uh, very impressive about Cubicle 7. Awesome. I can tell you that after after our conversation, looking at these pieces, all the things you're mentioning I'm noticing that I didn't notice before. Things like the crescent oh, cool. moons and the uh, you know consistent color palette and things like that. And it really, it, it adds it adds a lot to it. And it really uh, makes it a very full experience, even more so than it was before. I have a lot of fun if I can uh, if I can work something into the background, so that when you're flipping through the book, maybe the third or fourth time, you catch sight of it. Oh, I didn't see that. I wonder what's going on there. That guy, that guy <laughs> looks like a character. I wonder who that could be. There might be a backstory. Yeah. Why? I, why no. is this this random you know NPC walking in this? You know, he looks kind of shady walking in yeah. this door that's way in the background of an image that's about something completely different. Or the image yeah. that we just talked about of the, the priestess who is settling this dispute. Well, there's a building in the background. Whose building is that? Right. Who lives there? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, why is it important? I like it's, the, it's, I think about the tax collector piece, and I don't know if you did this one or not, um, Sam, but the tax collector piece where, um, like, kind of off to the side in the foreground, there's somebody obviously hard hiding from the guards. Right. The, yeah. the focus of the piece is they're collecting taxes from the, you know, the townspeople. But it was uh, that, that. Yeah, was, that was that was one of the ones that, that I sketched. Did you? Okay. Um, so sometimes sometimes we move things around and one of us, uh, one of us will sketch something and then someone else will will finish it up um, just because one person happens to be faster at sketching or somebody's just finished all their work. And, you you know, you just you just help out by uh, by taking a, a sketch. And sometimes it's just fun to swap them around anyway. Right. But yeah, that was that was one that I that I sketched out. And again, it's, there's narrative in it, and that's fun. Awesome. Well, so how can GMs and players use art for inspiration, right? So okay. you know, uh, setting pieces are are a big part. Matt and I talk about this a lot um, before. Like, you see a piece, and you immediately start to think of an adventure based on what you see. In fact, I'm going to interrupt you, Lance. One of the first things I remember you mentioning after we got the PDF for the core book was one of the art pieces of a dwarf like walking up, approaching a tower. And the, you just talked about how that piece right there, that one piece of art was enough to already get your wheels turning on, okay, this is going to be, I'm going to incorporate this. This is going to be the adventure and build off of it. Yeah, I think that was a John Hodgson piece. It was um, the snow covered, the, the dwarf entering the empire kind of deal. And uh, I, yeah, I think so. Yeah, I use that. I use that and actually made a whole adventure. Uh, actually, it was semi kind of where our first actual play started. Um, was similar from 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 that was a thought process. But um, and actually, I'm curious. Uh, do you uh, are you running any games currently, Sam? Yourself? I am not. No, I am not. No. So. Um, I know uh, when I when I use art for inspiration for an adventure or a setting, right? So, like some examples, I was thinking, right? So, uh, the rooftop squig fight that uh, I think that's in the core book. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. excellent. Um, that is uh, that right there. I, I saw that, and I immediately that is a an, an encounter that I want to have in one of my games eventually. Um, and it just 
I would have never thought to have, let's have a fight on roof, which I, sure, I, I could do that, but let's make squigs be on the roof too. <laughs> I would have never thought about it. How awesome <laughs> of an idea is that? Um, and that's just straightforward, right? So what about like uh, um, in the Guide to Uber's Reich, there's a Bretonian Chapel, uh, one of my yeah. favorite pieces there. Uh, did you do that one? Yes, I did. Yeah, that's a great piece. Uh, you look at that piece, and so there's not action going on in that piece. But for me, the setting and the mood is set when I look at that, and I immediately go, something has to be really meaningful here. There's going to be something. I'm going to set some sort of encounter or scene in that chapel. Uh, just And there's so many. And looking at the details, and I'm trying to figure out why is that there? Why is this important? You know, and so I don't know. That's that's another one of my favorite pieces there where I immediately thought, all right, I want to do something with this. I want to build an adventure off of that. I'm, I'm remembering back. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking back to that one. And that's the one where there are um, there are paintings on the wall. There are medieval style paintings on the wall. Um, you know, it's 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 the Bretonian style, I think, at the back. Um, and that. That's the kind of thing that makes me think when you are when you are looking at something like this, um, you can use something as an inspiration and you can spin back and forwards in time as well. If something appears as a painting, as a sculpture, as uh, as a heraldic device that um, that you maybe haven't seen before, um, if it's not already explained, how did it get there? What was the inspiration for that particular thing? You can go back and run the run the story that led to that being uh, immortalized in that way or. Uh, you could spin forwards as to you know what what the what the next one would be or um, what the art itself means in that world. What happens if something like that is is under threat? Um, and what you were talking about with the with the squigs is kind of really interesting because you know you say oh, you know rooftop fright uh, that's a that's a cool idea. Put squigs in it. Hadn't thought of that before. I like the idea of just taking things and mashing them together and seeing what happens. So uh, you know if you've got Oh, I mean, if you've got something like that, you replace that with any any number of different characters. Take uh, a scene from a film that you like and see what happens if you make that something that, that happens in the old world. Put your put your characters in there. Put some of the monsters in there. Take a scene that is in one of the illustrations. Swap one of the monsters out for any other character or elevate the monster to um, something that is uh, so much more powerful make it make it grow in stature give it some other some some sort of narrative element to it and then you figure out how your characters or characters that you had uh, you read a novel about it you've you've read some fan fiction about it. whatever it is just see how you can bring things together in this world and see how you think that, that it might spin out it feels like that if you can if you can do that if you can look at the world if you can look at the the background characters in the illustrations if you can imagine what would happen if they were swapped out for your characters if uh the, as i say the, the monsters were swapped out for anything else in the bestiary if you were to take some of the um some of the main characters um like the focus of an illustration and swap that out for one of your characters, one of the iconic characters, it suddenly you've got a whole new narrative and a whole new set of things to spin off. Exactly. <laughs> I think, I think you said it exactly right. Yeah. It's a very fascinating thing to consider, right? If you, let's say you want to have a rooftop fight, uh, but it's not going to be against squigs. You can still use that rooftop fight piece of art. And then you can flip back to the bestiary and say, Oh, somehow a 
wolf got up here or something else that you can, that the art doesn't necessarily need to be a literal interpretation of exactly what's there, but it still can help set that mood. Even if you're going to use only a portion of that art to better describe to your players, what, you know, what's going to be happening and, and how to set the scene. And it, it can, you can take you down some fun rabbit trails as well, because I mean, it, as long as it's a springboard for it, you start out with the roof. Well, it's what is it the roof of? What if it's a bigger roof? What if it's a smaller roof? What if the roof caves in? Right. What if the roof gets blown away by something? There are all kinds of things that you could do once you've got something a little bit different as a starting point. But you just start brainstorming from it and you can probably come up with 40 adventures right there. Yeah, I, I've already been, my brain's been going as soon as you started talking about changing elevation, which is something I hadn't. So I thought, man, so what is something really high, like, all right, on a, on a ship, like with the yard arms way up high, right? What wouldn't be high? Skaven. So what if I'm fighting Skaven in a crow's nest of a, of a ship? Oh, man. What, what kind of cool adventure would that be? Right. See, I'm worried now that I'm probably going to fall to my death in the next <laughs> actual play adventure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's that's going to be fun. So another thing you can do is try to bring in your own work into your games. So uh, one of the things we can talk about is some tips and tricks for your own art. Now, you don't have to be Sam Manley and be able to be... Man, I mess... See, if you were a GM, Sam, that'd be, that'd be amazing. Just think of the art you could bring to us to invoke feeling in your players like <laughs> that we could never touch. But... Uh, Anyway, so let's talk about some tips and tricks that you can do in your own game. Um, so I think the the first note I wrote down here is a picture is worth a thousand words, right? That's that's a saying that everybody yep. knows. And and the reality is that and we've talked a little bit about that. Um, so uh, recently there was uh, a Vargolf that uh, attacked the party in in our our old world podcast game, right? So I described this, but then I got out your piece of artwork, Sam, and I showed it to them. And I said, that okay. what that's what you're just seeing. It's six feet tall. And, you know, and uh, their faces drained a little bit. Yeah. So even something as simple as taking the art that's already there and using it and showing it at the appropriate time could really help you in your own game. And you don't have to be a Sam artist. Like I said, you don't have to be at that huge caliber. There are still ways that you can, you know, utilize art quickly. Uh, most of us do it without thinking, right? You draw a quick map, right? One thing I'll do too is when I maybe I'll set up a, a map beforehand that I'll draw with markers, right? And I'll spend a little extra time to try to make it a little nicer. And it really brings in the uh, the ambiance a little bit. I mean, it's still essentially me drawing stick figures, but I'm putting a little effort into it to try to... So it, instead of this is a wharf that you're at, you know, I have a little details now and now my players might go, oh, there's a boat there and they might think about something, right? Yeah. And, and just bringing that in. One of the things that I like to do, and I, my majority of my experience in GMing games is uh, GMing Star Wars. One of the things I like to do is anytime I am introducing a species, even at, like as an NPC, you know, prime example in one of the starter sets, the first encounter is in a bar and the, the bartender is uh, Deveronian. Well, unless you're a diehard fan of Star Wars, you're not going to know what that means. But so I'll, I'll pull up just Google, right? Just go, right. pop over to Google, type in and found a couple, you know, pieces of art that have been made in the past that are on Google. And I spin the computer on. I say, this is the, this is that bartender. And he's giving you a, you know, a, a nasty look. Well, I didn't need to use that piece of art, but that just helps the, the picture of the mind, right? The, or the palace of the mind, the 
the ability for the players to better understand their surroundings instead of just hearing there's a bartender there and failing in themselves help them create the most accurate picture possible. So I use Google all the time when I'm GMing. Anytime there's any question about the setting or a, a specific race or, or species or ship or something, I use, use that to my advantage. Yeah, and actually, and that's one of the, be- honestly, it's one of the beautiful things. We've talked about this before for the core rulebook, right? Any, like, there's a B-series, right? We have stat blocks with corresponding spawning art. Even in, like, Rough Nights and Hard Days, almost every stat block has corresponding art to it. So you don't have to go far. You don't have to necessarily Google as much. But, yeah, using Google and stuff. And I did put a little blurb here. And nowadays, I feel like you shouldn't have to say this, but just as a reminder, if you are putting anything out there for consumption, uh, you know, you're recording a video podcast or something like that, make sure you always, any artwork or anything that you might show or use that's going to go out there for public consumption, make sure you give credit to the authors. And you want to be careful. Sometimes you can pull artwork offline that is specifically the artists don't want that stuff distributed. And you need to be careful about that. So always make sure you're checking your sources on that. If it's going to be something now, most of you aren't going to be, you know, putting out a podcast or a video cast or doing a YouTube channel or something. But if you're going to pull up that map or that piece of art and you're going to put it on your channel, make sure you give credit where credit's due. That's my blurb. Yeah. So speaking of maps, so we have already seen many beautiful maps that have been uh, made for Wolfrup, and I'm sure that we will see many, many more in the future. So maps are amazing. They can help clarify so much and help players focus on the role-playing aspect of things instead of trying to set them set the scene themselves. One of the things, though, that I think we've fallen into is you need to be careful because players can use a map to game the system a little bit more than they should, right? If you see a map, then, well, maybe there's there's something that's written on the map that they they haven't they haven't seen yet because they haven't like reached that location but if they see it on there then that's going to draw them to that location you don't want the game to become too tactical by using a map but at the same time that's a great way to help your players get their bearings and kind of know where they are and distance how far they're going to travel we could do a whole show honestly on maps and oh, i we, think we, we plan to we intend to do yeah. a full show on maps there's no no doubt about that but i you know sam i I haven't seen you credited with any, have you, do you do maps at all? Like any sort of maps for your artwork? No, 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 no. That's, that's, uh, there are many better people placed uh, to (laughs) to tackle that particular kind of art. I know my limits. (laughs) I know Andy Law does most of the uh, cartography stuff um, for fourth edition and it's all amazing. But yeah, getting those maps out there can really help. Especially. You've seen, you've seen the Reitland poster map. It's. Oh. uh, Oh yeah. It's a thing of beauty. It, it really is. is. I so the problem. The problem I have, and I, I gonna next time when I see Andy Law in person, I'm gonna tell him this. He's he's done something terrible because what he gave me for the Reichland, I now need for the entire Warhammer globe. <laughs> You're gonna have a, a literal wall in your house covered in maps. And yeah, I'm not. I'm, not I'm, I'm upset about it at all. I mean, if I were like a noble in the old world and he was one of my artists, I would be like, awesome, great. Now I'm chaining you to this chair. Do the rest of the world because <laughs> it's so good. Yeah, they are. It's, his, his maps are absolutely fantastic. They really, really are. And the amount of detail that he goes into with them, um, it's astonishing. 
Yeah. Well, and the, the little things that are hidden in there too, that's something that, that we've touched on and, and I think Graham touched on last in our last discussion yeah. episode is yeah. that there, there can be something that you might not see the first hundred times you look at the map, but there's a little, there's a little outline that's hidden out in the woods somewhere. That's a little Easter egg. There's so many beautiful things that can be, be hidden in there that can help develop your story. Right. And, and Ooh. looking at a map, you can create a story hook just based on the relative location of one location to another or something. So in addition to maps, another great way to introduce art into your games is to use character portraits. So a quick sketch can show what a, an NPC looks like or have your players draw their own uh, character portraits is something I like to do. And I actually, I don't know if it was on Twitter or where I heard this recently, but it really kind of rang true with me is that it's unfortunate that that peop- a lot of people will refuse to do pieces of art because they they don't think they're good at it, right? Instead of letting it just be an expression and yeah. something that they, you know, have fun with, you, you a lot of times people can feel self-conscious about the fact that, well, I'm not as good an artist, right? If I'm sitting at the table with uh, Lance, you and I, and Sam Manley and my <laughs> four-year-old, like there's going to be four very or maybe three very distinct <laughs> levels of artwork that are being drawn, but that doesn't doesn't discredit the effectiveness or the 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 efficacy of any of it. Yeah, our, just, just our be- first piece of fan work that we ever got sent into us was basically a stick figure thing, and it yeah. was it was great. No, no joke. My my mother <laughs> drew a like she was listening to our um, what was it the the Goblin Cave episode? Yeah, and there was like yep, there was the first one. You described this big sea of all these these luminescent mushrooms all over the ground, and sure enough, she was like sketched it out and sent me a picture of it. <laughs> Shout out to my mom. You rock. <laughs> nice. I think that's a really important point. Um, it's about, you know, have, uh, having a window into the world, but it's just about expressing um, expressing yourself, having a bit of fun with creativity. And I feel like that's a... This is one of the things that I actually really love about role-playing games in general, is that I feel like sometimes people don't just have creative fun, you know? Mm. I feel like I feel like there's more interaction when you are having uh, when when you are creating something like that when you are playing a role playing game with uh, you know with your friends around a the table there's more interaction um, there's more creativity that's going on there than if you are say if you are watching a film and I'm not knocking films in any way I think they're fabulous but it's a different kind of interaction and it does it, it causes your brain to work in in different ways and there's something that I think is quite wonderful about that about that kind of creativity. And I feel like, you know, pe- people express that in, in different ways. Some people, some people like to write, some people like to draw, some people like to uh, sculpt, some people like to cook. Um, some people like to practice martial arts. I, I, I would defend that as, a, as, a, as an expression of creativity as well. There's all kinds of different ways of doing it. But fundamentally, unless you are specifically trying to, to be a professional, this is about having some fun. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, you nailed it right on the, right on the head. I, I, if I think back to my, the, my favorite scenes or encounters in any role-playing game that I've played, it's not the epic tactical victory we managed to get out. It's where someone has an idea and another player builds on it, and we're all basically doing a collaborative, you know, creative process. And... Um, and, and quite frankly, most of those have very 
very small amount of dice rolling, and it's great, and it's the part we all remember most when mm-hmm. we think back about that game. So, I think you nailed it. And on it's the hard head. to find. It's hard to find that that level of of creativity and possible cooperation or backstabbing or however your game is going to go. I think it's quite hard to find that outside of this medium. Yeah, I man, Sam, you're making me think deep thoughts here, man. <laughs> Oh, all right. Well, um, so I think I, what I'd like to do at this point, is we kind of talked a little bit about how you can use some art in your games. We talked about the grim in art and, and we've talked about art, a lot of art here. <laughs> so let's talk about some of our favorite pieces of fourth edition art. So you want to go first, Matt? Sure. There are a lot to pick from. A couple that really stand out. This was a I absolutely love the starter set, how the two books in the starter set make this beautiful panorama. That's this bustling town with a river flowing through it, a giant bridge. There's so many little things that can be seen just in that piece of art. And I think it is literally perfect for a starter set because if it's likely that some of the players or maybe all of the players at the table have never experienced Warhammer before. And I don't, I can't think of a better piece of art to show what the world is like, right? This dingy, dark, overcast, grimy, dirty city, right? That's, but that's huge. Except for the bridge, because the dwarves did that and they know how to build stuff. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, that's solid. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So that, that is absolutely one of my favorites because of how it is a very useful tool. But in addition, uh, there's... There's a lot. Another one that really stands out is on page 173 of the core book, and it is a battle scene in a graveyard with oh, a yeah. with uh, Gunnar the dwarf, and he is fighting. He and others are fighting against a bunch of undead, and there's a, a mounted, you know, warlock or uh, whomever it is. Ne- yeah, necromancer, yeah. and it is that piece. Just like you said, Lance, it really. Just by looking at that, it makes me want to develop a story where my players end up in a graveyard and end mm-hmm. up you know, bringing forth uh, the, the army of the undead. It also is a great piece for anybody who's playing a slayer, right? Because you look at that, you can describe what a slayer is, but you could, you know, being able to flip to this page and say, see this guy, he's, he's trying to get himself killed here to restore his honor. That's another piece that really stands out and even others scrolling through. There's one of the, uh, the noble who is sitting on a, uh, uh, in his chair and gets poked by a, a needle that somebody put on his chair. Yeah. Right. So it's not, it's <laughs> that's not... from rough nights and hard days. That one, yeah, that one yeah, is, yeah. And, and that one, sorry, I, I just to interrupt here. I, one of the things I love about that piece is there is absolutely no question that that hurt like it's so yeah. like obvious you see that piece and you're like oh he's hurting yeah well you can see the size of the nail yeah like <laughs> I, yeah no no doubt about it well well the thing i love about that piece is that so often warhammer's talked about this grim and perilous grim gritty you know dark all these different things deadly well that doesn't mean that that's that's everything it's not everything there's still going to be moments of laughter and moments of you know camaraderie and and goofy things like this now that's not to say that that nail that the dude sat on was poisoned and he's going to die a horrible grim and perilous terrible death in the near future but maybe not maybe it was a colleague that just wanted to play a practical joke 
so many different ways to interpret it. And that that's just another example of a piece that's not, not quite as dark, but still, still can invoke a lot of different feelings. What about you, Lance? Oh man, I'm going to try to keep this to 20 minutes. No, it's, there's so much good art, uh, so much. And so much of it, uh, like you said, invokes feeling. And so there's a few things that I really, really like. Um, so one of the things that I really like is uh, the Wizards. And this is actually, I think, the first piece that really Ooh. caught. Uh, and I was like, who did these Wizards? And it was Sam. And um, the, the they just... I don't know. I've been a long-time ta- Warhammer Fantasy uh, battle game player, and so I've always known about the College of the Wizards, and you always have this art. And I, it's just one of those things when I saw it, I'm like, boom. Like, this nailed exactly what these wizards are about. So I like those pieces. Um, the offerings for the different gods, like how there's the, uh, you know, the like the wolf head um, for Ulrich, and, you know, all those different, like, so evocative. Uh, I know it's a simple piece of art, but some of those things, like Raya has all of those, you know, different fruits and stuff. Like, it really encapsulates, like, what I would need to know as a player about that god in just a single piece of art. So... Those are some of the ones from the core book, but maybe, and and I hesitate. I also, one of my favorites too is that one we talked about earlier with the Slayer walking into the Empire in the snow. Um, I'm pretty sure that was a John Hodgson piece. Um, that's a great piece. There was another one, and I'm not, and I think this might have been you, Sam. It's the one of the earliest ones they showed us before we had the core book was the boat where you can see the the party walking off the boat. Um, yep, that's that's a double page piece, I think. Yeah, yeah, that was yeah, another, that's, mine. that's yours. Oh, it's great because, and I think, and we talked about it in one of our earliest shows when when we saw that art. The pieces that really inspire me, and they're so like I know it seems like a simple piece, but there's so much going on in the details there when you really look. And I just I the I have an entire story in my head by looking at that one piece of art. Okay, and so one of the this isn't in a book yet that I'm aware of, but I expect it soon. But you did all the chaos symbols when they uh, announced the uh, Enemy Within Collector's Edition. And yes, I did. The zinc, yes, I did. The zinc symbol, sir. I'm gonna sit here and just. It is perfect. It is perfect. It's a symbol that encapsulates exactly what you need to know about zinc. It is so good. I when I saw that piece, I was like, "Oh my gosh!" It's, I don't know. I'm I'm gushing over here. It is that is probably one of my favorite pieces. That one must have been a ton of fun to do too. They really were. Um, I would say that the designing the chaos symbols, um, those were probably my favorite pieces. I, I've done, an, like you said, I've, I've done an awful lot of work for this, but I'm gonna home in on those because those are probably the ones that they had the most meaning and they felt the coolest. Those are the ones that were around in the, uh, you know, that I was seeing from things in games workshop right from when I was eight, you know, Mm. corn, zinch, slanesh, nurgle, they were there. The symbols were there. And so when I had the opportunity to be able to design those for Woofrup, it was, it was, it was an amazing feeling. Um, and so what, what happened for these is, um, this is one that a set that was designed, um, with uh, an awful lot of work uh, with Andy Law uh, directing these. And so he came up with the idea that what we should do is to make these a little bit different. We're going to go with the lesser demon 
uh, of each of the uh, of each of the gods uh, and incorporate that in some way, maybe their head um, somewhere in the image to to set it apart from other things. And and then I was looking back at the various ways that these symbols have been interpreted. But the the thing that struck me the most was going right back to what might have I don't know if it was the very first, but what might have been the first. And I I want to say it was Ian Miller who did the um, this fantastic just black and white ink uh, versions of these. And most of them are kind of similar to the way that they are now. I think the Nurgle one has changed quite a lot. There were times when that was less um, the, the, the three circles and the, uh, and the spikes and more almost like a fly design. Okay. But it was, looking, it was looking back at those. I wanted to take inspiration from those shapes and the feeling that came off those and then... Uh, you know, bring them into something that was that was uh, painted up, something that was you know rendered um, in in full color, and that had this feeling of the um, of the demons' heads as a part of it. Um, and, and one of the ones that uh, particularly stood out uh, when I was going through the design for it was the corn one, because obviously you have to keep the brass and the skulls in there. But obviously. If I went back to the the very first one, uh, well, I say the very first one, the 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 ink work, I'm I'm fairly sure was Ian Miller. Okay, um, that had a slightly different look to some parts of it. That had a, a sort of a fleshier, veinier look to some of it, and I hadn't seen that in any of the subsequent illustrations. So that was something that I wanted to bring through, and that made it possible to have blood actually dripping off parts of that one. Um, the Nurgle one, Nurgle is just pure fun. You know, you've, you've got, <laughs> you've got open sores, you've got oh, maggots, yeah. you've got all kinds of things just bursting out of, this, this is just disgusting. Yeah. It's rotten, yep. it's disgusting, and it's so much fun. The Zinch one, I think is also my favorite. Um, the way that the original design had faces and uh, it was sort of one part flowing into another part. That was something that I wanted to capture. That was something that I hadn't seen as much. Um, so again, I wanted to go back to the to the old uh, design for that one. And then uh, for Slanesh, obviously, we just go very fleshy. Um, we put the we put the demonette's head on there. It's it's looking a little. You probably want to wash your hands after looking at that one. Right. <laughs> um, but those were those were. Um, those are probably my favorite pieces to work on. But I just want to go back to, um, you mentioned the, the cover for the starter set. Yes. And the way that the, those, those two books, if you put them together, you can, you can see the, yeah. uh, you, can, you can see like a double page of the city. Um, that was fun to work on. Because again, uh, Andy, Andy Law was working on the map for that while I was working on the, uh, the illustration for it. And we, we did our best to make sure that they actually matched up. So that what you are seeing on the cover um, is pretty accurate to awesome. what the city is is actually like, and that's one of those things where you're like you might not catch it the first time, you might not catch it the second time, but you go, oh, actually no, that that that's the that's the Magnus. Oh and yeah, okay, I get wow. it now. That see, that's an attention, a, a level of attention to detail that is really, really and, and I didn't go, I didn't go back, and you know exactly what I'm doing when you're done recording. Here. Yeah, I'm exactly. Go get that already out. like, like uh, yeah. Point. Yeah. So that's that's awesome. Well, I know. Oh man, that's so cool. That's in that collaboration, and I mean that little bit of extra work 
is just going to be so much more meaningful. Like that cover now just got more meaningful yeah. to me. Yep. That's so cool. It's, so many things can be brought forth by a, a piece of art. Another thing that reminds me again of the, uh, some of that Graham mentioned the, uh, goblin that's on the cover of the, uh, enemy in shadows is yeah. not just any goblin. It is a very specific goblin and it's got an extra <laughs> leg that, uh, you know, can, can tie into, uh, something that happened in the past. Did, it's just very did you do that cover, Sam? No, no. I believe um, I want to say that was Ralph Horsley. Okay, yeah, that sounds right. I'd have to go double check. I don't have it in front of me, but yeah, that one's good. You, uh, uh, but you did the cover for the buildings of the Reichland, right? Yes. So, because I think yes, I did. before we started recording, you were telling me that that piece has a ton going on in the background. Was that? Yeah. If you if you look, that is. Um, uh, there is there is more to that illustration, but within that illustration anyway, hopefully you can see quite a lot uh, going on. I do believe that you can see an ogre in that one. Um, and he is walking through the town. And um, Yeah, there's an ogre in that. And then on the roof, like there's a guy falling from the roof. Yep. That's so... But also there's a, there's, um, a, a moon-headed familiar in that which is a character that i i absolutely love yeah i did notice that before and um i uh i just i didn't put that two and two together i that i had noticed that and i just was slipping by it that's cool all of the all of the characters in there um my, my aim was so that all of the characters would have some character so that when you are when you're having a look at, at, at this and um you know when when Hopefully, some uh, this is this. There's more to the picture. Um, but when you're having a look at any of the characters in here, there should be a sense of character. There could be a potential um, adventure, or they could be part of your adventure as side characters somewhere. Something to spin off from the way that they're interacting with the other people, from what they're holding, from just their general demeanor. Well, and characters are such a big, big part of the art. One of the things that I love is that we're not each each piece is not its own unique world with its own unique. I mean, a lot of them are, but you know, so many of these pieces we're seeing the same characters. We're seeing Molly the halfling. We're seeing Gunnar the the dwarf in so yeah. many of these pieces that there's that that also adds to the consistency of it. Yeah, and, and then the stories too. Yeah, that that the pieces tell with those consistent characters. Yeah, if you want to get an idea of. You know, you're talking about getting an idea of, of, of the uh, of the Slayer. Um, yeah. yeah. Then put, put together what a Slayer is. If if you if you find, I think it is towards the end of the core book. Um, I'm just scrolling through a PDF. I've got of it now. Um, Page two forty two. I think three forty two. Yep. I think another one where he's facing down the greater demon. Yep. That's the one. And yet, you know. That, that that gives you, everyone else is running away. Yep. Everyone else is just going, I'm, I don't fancy any of this. Yep. The color palette for that, that piece is so unique. It is, it gives you that feel of like this, this dead of night, little bit of cloud cover, full moon is casting all sorts of light down onto the scene. That is a, an incredible piece too. That was up there for one that I was oh, considering for my favorite. And I think to me, it's the perfect, and this might've been art direction, but the perfect piece to finish the rule book off because that's the last piece of art in the book, yeah. right? So you really yeah. look at it. One of the first pieces is Gunner entering the Empire. And I think TS might've talked a little bit about this when we had him on the show, but the very last piece is, does Gunner survive? Nobody knows, yeah. you know? What almost certainly is his demise. Yeah, right. 
But right. you never know. Yeah. The real question is not whether or not he died, just did he kill the demon before he yeah. died? <laughs> oh. I mean, nobody's kneecaps are safe. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> so let's let's conclude this up here. Um, so we we talked about the artwork. We've talked about how important it is to role-playing games, to the setting, just the, the, the whole process that, that you go through too, Sam. Um, we've talked about tips and tricks you can use to try to mm-hmm. help get inspiration we've talked about um how you can use it at the table and you don't have to be afraid and you utilize creativity let's let's get everybody's final thoughts on kind of artwork and role-playing games and in fourth edition specifically so you want to start us off with this one sam oh i mean that's that's quite a that's quite a broad topic do you want to to narrow that down a little bit because i could rattle for hours (laughs) I guess, in, how about this? In conclusion, if, if you were to give one piece of advice to a, a GM out there that wanted to use art in their game, what would it be? Just let your imagination go crazy with it. You can always rein that stuff back, but just find find the things that you like. Find the things that you think are going to be fun. And just, if you're not sure what to do, just take the things that you like and just try swapping things out, mashing them together, see what happens, because you will definitely have some fresh ideas coming off that. I love it, Matt. So one of the things I would say, I think so often when we're absorbing, when gamers and GMs are absorbing uh, information that come out of rule books, you're so focused on getting to the rules that a lot of times you might skip right over a piece of art. You might not even glance at it, or you may only glance at it as you're flipping the page to, you know, read the next talent or to get to the next character or something. I would urge everybody who owns a copy of this book or who has the PDF to really spend some time. The next time that you go to open it up, just spend 30 minutes, 45 minutes, maybe an hour and go through here and take a second and look at every piece because not only did a lot of work go into that piece, but it can do so much for your perception of the world or it could it could influence a, you know, if you're a GM, it could influence the next setting that you wanted to do or any number of things. It's all those little details that are in there. Really spend some time, go through and really appreciate all the the work that went into this and how much it can, it can better your ability to GM or to play the game. Awesome. Um, honestly, and I'm just going to be the broken record that says when you're the GM and you're trying to figure out an adventure, just look at the art, man. And if you're not, if you don't feel like you're creative, Fine, just just take a piece of art and make an adventure based on what exactly what you see. Go grab that piece that has a rooftop battle with squigs on it. Get some stats for some squigs. Figure out what falling damage is. Uh, FYI, it's bad. And yeah, figure, and, figure out the plan to get your players on top of a roof. Don't even t- just tell them we're starting the, se- se- the yeah. scene off. You chased a a beggar or a something up on the roof. You're on the roof. Oh, now there are squigs. I mean, it, you don't. Start there and then work on your creativity yeah. from that point. I mean, because if you feel like oh, it's too hard to do, I'm not a creative guy. I've actually had people write us and say that. Don't worry about it. Take what the creativity of the artists you already have and go with it. And I guarantee you'll start to, you know, have your own ideas about how to how to go forth. That's actually great advice. Um, excuse me. <clears throat> Nothing's created in a vacuum, and I, you know, I I believe that creativity is. Um, it's a skill. It's almost like a muscle that the more, the more you use it, the, the easier it is to figure out how to use it. And the more you surround yourself with other people's ideas and you take those in, the more you get your own spin on them. 
So, I mean, yeah, just ne- never, never be afraid of it. Never be afraid of, of uh, for your own games, just borrowing someone else's ideas. Because if you've been doing it enough, the ideas will come. Awesome. Yeah, that's, awesome. A, that's great advice. It is. All right, guys. So uh, let's move on to uh, listener questions. So this is a segment in our show where we take listener questions uh, that people have sent to us and uh, we throw some out there for thoughts. So before we get started here, Matt, how can someone get us these questions? Excellent question. You can hit us up on all of our social media, Twitter or Facebook, or email us at questions at oldworldpodcast.com. So on this episode, we're going to give a little bit of light uh, to some character creation questions. So there are a few questions we often run into, and we actually, in a recent character creation session with one of our patrons, Nolan LaRoque, we discussed a couple that we thought might be beneficial to discuss on air. So our first question, when creating a character, where does it say you only get those six species skills? The So you can choose, can you choose the same skill to advance by five and by three? This is one that I I get a lot. I've gotten I've done a lot of character creation with a lot of different people, and this one always comes up. And it's the question is can uh, it's it's more well wait I don't get all of them. And the confusion here lies because when you look at the text, um, it's actually talking about you get all of the talents for your species, but you don't get all of the skills. And the text specifically reads that you. Um, and this is on page 36 of your core rulebook yep. if you're if you're at home. Yep. You may choose three skills to gain five advances each and three skills to gain three advances each. And so some people think that you might be able to count this as eight. And uh, we've actually reached out there to uh, the different uh, social media out there to, to try to verify this. Because... And uh, essentially, there's a general agreement. And we did throw this out to Andy. I don't know um, if Andy or Ben will come back on it specifically. But the concept here is that you get, they're separate. So you're essentially going to pick six skills. Three of those skills you give five advances to. And three different skills you will give three advances to. So of those six skills, they will all get at least three advances. Right. Whereas three will get five. Furthermore, those species skills do not count as career skills for later advancement and cannot advance later unless they are also a career skill, right. which I believe was lift, listed in an FAQ. Yeah, that was the Ben's FAQ that he did. Yeah, so they clarified that. So, all right, uh, second question. All right, so uh, in order to complete a second level career, do I have to advance all of the skills from my current level and all of the lower levels as well. And so this is on page 48 of your core rule book, if you're following at home. And the short version is no. So the, the way, because this can get confusing, but there's actually language in the core rule book that really makes this clear, but it's easy to miss. On page 48, it says, to complete a career, you must have the number of advances listed below in all of your career levels, characteristics, and eight of your career levels available skills. Now, the FAQ that just came out by Ben does address the characteristic question because um, there's a little bit of clarity on that, so you can go there to check that out. But as far as the skill, the skills, it's just eight, and it's eight of the available skills. So if you look at page 47 under skill advances, um, it actually says you can advance all the skills listed for your career level and b- lower. So if you're on the second tier of your career, you have access to all those skills, plus 
the skills below. And when you really look at this, there are several examples. Like not all of this, all of the tier one level one skill um, uh, careers have eight skills, but level two, three, they don't. They usually don't have eight right. skills. They have less. Quite a, quite a bit fewer. So yeah. it's essentially the only way you could do it. So you could pick any eight skills you want, and you'd have to advance them according to the chart that's on page forty-eight. So. Some technical questions there. Character creation can be a little technical, but we keep getting these questions, and so we thought we'd uh, address these on here. Yeah. Thanks to everyone who has sent in questions and for all of your support. If you have any questions of your own, don't hesitate to send them our way. Okay. So that's the end of our show tonight. Thank you so much, Sam, for joining us. Uh, we really appreciate you being on our show and uh, just gabbing with us about you know Warhammer. It was great fun. It was really good fun. Again, thank you for inviting me here. Absolutely. Before we go, we do have one question to ask that I'm sure our listeners will be interested in hearing. Can you tell us what your favorite experience you've ever had in a Wolfrup game is? Okay, so I kind of I want to turn this one around a bit. Um, creating moments for other people to explore as they spot them in my pieces of art things away from the main again going back to the idea of the background characters when i hear that somebody has seen something and that has inspired an adventure or the creation of a character that is fantastic having said that uh, there was a game um when it was it was pretty hard to beat there was a rat and it had scrolls all kinds of contracts it was remarkably litigious um but it was a kind of a really surreal moment bound people with them obviously it was possessed um, but it was one of those things that was kind of cute to start with and then increasingly disturbing as things went on, started as a background character and ended up actually being um, not quite the main villain, but a conduit for. So, I mean, I thought that was an example of something that was um, pretty imaginative. Wow. That is really cool. <laughs> yeah. That's, uh, this is by far my favorite part when we have guests on for the show is to hear... Well, it's a very, very interesting perspective, right? That uh, what you said to start with, that you, for you, the enjoyment that you get so much enjoyment from when people can can find those little things in your pieces of art that influence their games. And I think that's, that's really wonderful. All right. So in our next episode, we will be doing another career review. So uh, this time we have a couple of different ones we're uh, looking at. Uh, I know there's a really strong possibility that the Witch Hunter is going to be in that. Um, a slight possibility the Nun. There could be some, some other things going on there. But a uh, career episode is definitely on the docket for our next episode, um, you know, as far as we know. So uh, we expect that to come for our next discussion. So be sure to join us next time. So intrepid listeners, keep in touch. Let us know your questions, feedback, and even show topic suggestions. You can contact us multiple ways by checking out our website at www.oldworldpodcast.com. Twitter is at Old World Podcast and Facebook, facebook.com slash oldworldpodcast. And while you're checking us out on the various social interwebs, be sure to hop on over to our Patreon page and support us. If you like what we're doing and you want to help out, become a patron. For only a couple dollars a month, you can support the show and get some cool rewards too. Check us out at patreon.com slash oldworldpodcast. Also, let us know what you think. Visit iTunes or your preferred podcast service and rate us. Every review helps us reach even more Warhammer fans. All right, Sam, can you let people know where they can find you if they want to follow you on various social media platforms? Well, the first thing that they should do is uh, hop on over to the Cubicle 7 website and subscribe to the newsletter. But then having done that, if you want to find me personally, um, probably the best places to do that would be on instagram uh where i'm there is midnight illustration 
or on Twitter, where I am on there as Sam Manley Artist. And uh, yeah, I would, uh, I'd love for you to hop on over. Lance, you put together some of, of Sam's art, and I can say that seeing the side by side of the line drawing that then became a full piece is definitely worth a follow. Yeah, yeah, a lot of his pieces have that on there. Yeah, and, and it's really cool. So I like to show people a little bit of the process as often as I can. Very cool. Excellent. This is Lance saying good night and make sure you always check your roof for squigs. This is Matt saying to all the jams out there, utilize art in your games. What better way to show your players exactly what's going to kill them? And this is Sam signing off and returning to a rather stormy night here where I seem to be out of my favorite drink. Truly, things are grim and perilous. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Nice. This podcast and related website are completely unofficial and are not endorsed by Games Workshop Limited or Cubicle 7 Entertainment. It is intended for educational and informational purposes only. GW Games Workshop, Warhammer, Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, and all associated logos, illustrations, images, names, creatures, races, vehicles, locations, weapons, characters, and the distinctive likenesses thereof are registered trademarks of Games Workshop Limited, Cubicle 7 Entertainment, or their respective trademark or copyright holders. All original content of this podcast, including any audio or video information, is the intellectual property of the Old World Podcast and Crimson Tower Studios, LLC. 